and welcome to today's episode of the Pipeline ACC Podcast. I am Dan Siegel from ACC Content. I am joined, as always, by Jason Gibbs. Jason, how are we doing today? Dan, lovely as always. You know, we're wrapping up basically the college football season. We're ramping up college basketballs. You know, we're obviously getting into conference play now, you know, a few, few games deep. Going to be fun. Going to be a lot of fun. Well, today we are going to be joined by Michael Rothstein, who Falcons fans may know. He covers the Atlanta Falcons for ESPN, among a plethora of other topics. But today we're going to have him on to discuss. He wrote a very good piece about Cordero Patterson and the kind of how football as a game itself is revolutionizing. And then we'll talk about the new UVA offensive coordinator hire who came from the Falcons and maybe some NFL draft stuff. So we'll get Michael on in just a second. But first, here is Samuel Woolard with your obscure betting tip of the day. Thanks, Jason and Dan. For my first ever obscure betting tip, I'm going to travel to the land of the Ivy League, where tonight Cornell travels to Penn and is a three and a half to a four point underdog, depending where you look. I'm going to take the points. I'm going to take Cornell on the road. They've played stiff competition lately in Syracuse, Virginia Tech, and Dartmouth. Even though they haven't won all those games, they've hanged tough. They've scored a lot of points. And I think on the road in the Ivy League, they can maybe even sneak a win against Penn. So for my first ever pick, I'm going to go with Cornell plus the points. Uh, Happy betting and uh, enjoy your weekend. Okay, thank you very much, Sam. Now here comes Michael Rosti. So we are now joined by Michael Rothstein, who covers the Falcons for ESPN, among a plethora of other topics. Michael, appreciate you coming on. How's it been? You know, a little bit of improvement this year down Falconland, right? Like maybe a little reason for positivity? I mean, I think so, because if you look at what Atlanta had going in the year, you understand the situation they had with the salary cap and that they needed to move on from guys and have guys take pay cuts and all of these other things just to be able to afford to sign their rookies. It was a roster that was beat up. It was a roster that was not deep. It was a roster that if you suffered an injury somewhere, really at any position on the field, except for maybe safety, you would be in real trouble. And we've seen that because Calvin Ridley doesn't play for most of the season due to personal issues. And their receiver core is, Frankly, Cooper Cup, I haven't checked the numbers as of last week, but there two weeks ago, Cooper Cup had more receiving yards than all of the Falcons receivers combined. And that's not good, as good as Cooper Cup has been. So, yeah, the fact that they are seven and nine and that last week they were still in the playoff race and that they made it through all of December still being in contention, and I'm using air quotes there, even though you can't see it if you're listening to this, because – they were always kind of on the fringes of it is a sign that things could be looking up in Arthur Smith's favor in year two, obviously Arthur Smith, a former North Carolina offensive lineman. So has some ACC ties there. And some of the people on his staff include TJ Yates, the former North Carolina quarterback, but yeah, there's reason for some optimism. I think in Atlanta based off of what you saw in year one, but understanding that this roster is going to look a lot different in year two. 
Yeah, and that's kind of I guess we'll start with that because you know we're we're obviously an ACC podcast and you might be moving on to a different quarterback in the near future, perhaps next year. So we have to know you're picking around 10 ish in the first round. We need to know what your thoughts are on Kenny Pickett. I don't know how much research you've done yet on the draft, but what are your thoughts on Pickett? Usually I don't get to the draft until after the regular season is over or until really the team covering is, is out of it because there's so much, I covered the Lions for eight years and that left me actually usually a lot of bowl seasons to be able to watch college games, even as I was still covering the NFL, because I was paying more attention to what was going on with their future prospects. But, you know, we just didn't know for so long where the Falcons might be picking. It could be, it could have been anywhere from really nine or 10 all the way down into, you know, the mid twenties, if they had made the playoffs and who knows what happens there. So I haven't totally paid attention yet. Plus the, the Falcons need everything in some form or fashion, whether it's a starter or depth. As far as Kenny Pickett goes, I've watched him play a couple games. I really like his game. I think he's really a strong player. It would not shock me if he's the first quarterback taken, but as I've we've seen so often, especially when there's not a clear-cut, obvious, like Trevor Lawrence-like number one pick, you, you just don't know. And so much can happen between – the all-star games and the combine and visits and pro day. And also the fact that the top two teams aren't necessarily going to be taking a quarterback that who knows who will be available, but I like what Kenny Pickett brings. I think there's potential there, but I don't think this, at least from what I've read and, and the limited amount of college football that I've watched and the small amount of research that I've already done I don't get the sense this is a really strong quarterback class, but hey, the ACC is going to have two of those quarterbacks, I think, that are in the conversation to go fairly early in Howell and in Pickett. Yeah, if you, if you guys wait a year, you guys could select uh, Phil Dracovic, right, and go from Boston College Eagle to Boston College Eagle to quarterback. be perfect. I mean, it's possible. And, and listen, it's funny. I did a radio show earlier today. We're recording this, what, Thursday? evening and I did a radio show earlier today where they were like oh so Matt Ryan's in the sunset of his career and I'm like well but no Matt Ryan might not be in the sunset of his career right he's 36 but most got a lot of the top end quarterbacks now are playing over 40 Matt Ryan has I thought played his consistent self through most of the year because you have to understand what he has around him he doesn't have a lot of weapons around him he doesn't have a lot of guys who can get open, get separation. And Matt Ryan's a guy who's always depended on being able to deduce and find the open guy. That's been his game since he was at BC. Sure, his arm strength has dipped a little bit, but he's still a very competent and very good quarterback. And to me, a quarterback that's a top half of the league quarterback. So I don't know why people are trying to retire Matt Ryan so quickly. Uh, He's still a capable player in the league. It's not like he's lollipopping passes everywhere. They're, the balls he throws sell some pop on them, and he's still a very smart quarterback, too. I think he's done actually a pretty good job this year considering what he's been asked to do and what they've given him. But, sure, it's possible. Listen, at some point they're going to have to plan for their future, whether that's a veteran that they bring in because the NFL is really changing in that aspect where it's not all based on rookies. If you choose to build your team – through the draft and build everything else. Maybe you can get a veteran who's not happy somewhere as we've seen now every year over the last few years and pop that player in as the last piece, or you go get a rookie. But if you're bringing Matt Ryan back, 
there are so many holes on this Falcons team that if you're committed to Matt Ryan, at least in 2022, you probably want to go get options elsewhere. So that way maybe you have more flexibility in 2023 when also there's supposed to be a stronger quarterback class. And that's maybe where Jerkovic could come in. You know, you wrote a really good piece on uh, Cordell Patterson and the evolution of positionless football. Why don't you start by you know, quickly summing up your thoughts on that? <clears throat> on Patterson or on positionless football? Uh, yeah, really, I mean, a little bit of both, but, you know, as just mainly talking about the evolution of positionless football. Yeah, so, I mean, listen, Patterson and guys like Debo Samuel are the latest iterations of that. Now, we've seen this sort of stuff for years, going back to the days of Tavon Austin and, you know, in the NFL, at least, going all the way back to Antoine Randall and Cordell Stewart and a guy I covered in Detroit, Jamal Agnew, and you could even argue Golden Tate a little bit, although he was primarily a wide receiver, that there's always been hybrid guys. A guy like J.D. McKissick in Washington is a guy that is a running back but is has the ability to do both. And Cordero Patterson is really the last, the next, or I guess latest, version of that and what's interesting about Patterson and Debo Samuel is that they are bigger guys being asked to do both because usually when we've seen these types of guys in the past the Austins the Percy Harvins they're they're smaller guys right like they're guys who are slot receivers who also can go in the back like Patterson is 6'2 all of 220 and he, he's he's a lot of dude basically and Debo Samuel's a lot of dude and you look at that and you say, okay, well, what does that mean? And what it's done is it causes havoc for opposing defenses. I talked to Falcons defensive coordinator, Dean Pease, about this. And he said, listen, like a guy like Patterson makes you go very vanilla defensively, at least in practice, because you have, you don't know where he's going to be and you know what he's going to do on each play. And that makes it so difficult to defend because they can have Patterson in the backfield and motion him out to a wide receiver. And then, well, what have you committed there? Or you could have Patterson in the slot and motion him into the backfield if you're an empty, or even if you're in a single back. And, and what do you end up doing there? That That's what makes it so tricky. And Patterson, to his credit, has been lobbying very hard, and it ha didn't happen this year. And personally, I think it should happen, that they should have a hybrid position for the Pro Bowl because guys like Patterson, guys like Debo Samuel, that's how they would get into the game. Although Debo, theoretically, this year could have gotten in as wide receiver as well. And it's because those are those types of guys. That's that type of player. And it can go the other way, too, with pass catching backs, because we how many running back Reggie Bush is another example of that. Right. Like Reggie Bush was a smaller guy, but he was a running back who was a fantastic pass catcher out of the backfield. And he's as much he was as much of a hybrid player, I think, as anybody, although he's more classified as a running back. So it's always been there. I think it's just getting more attention now because the game is changing and you're seeing it on the defensive side of the ball. Jordan Rodri, Jordan Rodri, who's a good friend of mine, wrote a piece on Jalen Ramsey uh, for the athletic on Thursday that ran on Thursday. It's a fantastic piece. I highly recommend you read it, but it was talking about how Jalen Ramsey is used on defense and he's using the star position in the Rams defense. And what that is, is they move Jalen Ramsey a little bit everywhere to try and get him into the most advantageous spot. So, that's kind of, I think, what we're seeing. And, and in talking to Dave Ragone, who's the Falcons offensive coordinator, former Louisville quarterback, and Dean Pease, 
the defensive coordinator of the Falcons, both of them were saying, yeah, like we see positionless football potentially as the future because it's the way to get your best playmakers in space to make the most plays. And that's really at the end of the day, what it all comes down to. You talk about how Debo Samuel and Cordero Patterson are bigger guys. And what struck me as a guy on uh, UVA who will likely be coming back to play college football next year. And that's also the school that former Falcons running back coach Des Kitchings is now going to be the OC at. There's a guy, Keaton Thompson at UVA. He's 6'4", 220. And he was used kind of in a similar way, like motioned and all sports of so all sorts of spots throughout the formation from the backfield to a receiving spot or vice versa. So talk to me about like how the scouting of college prospects will kind of change and open things up for guys like Thompson. I don't know if it changes, Daniel. Uh, I think more it, it makes guys more aware of what could potentially happen and what they could do and different plans and ideas for guys. And it depends, frankly, on the innovation of the co head coach and the innovation of the coordinator in that, because think of how many places Cordero Patterson has been where he didn't either get a full chance to make this type of hybrid move or it just wasn't thought of like his whole time in Minnesota, New England messed around with this a little bit. And then he went to Oakland and it didn't really happen. And then really in Chicago with Charles London and Dave Ragone is where this all started last year. And then Ragone and London end up in Atlanta and Patterson's a free agent and they, they made the pitch to Patterson. Patterson had an idea of maybe what their, their idea for him was Arthur Smith, is, is an innovative coach, is somebody who likes to try and find matchups and be creative with guys. And Patterson, to him, made a, a bunch of sense. So it's going to depend on the coach and the coordinator, but it would not shock me if more teams look at what San Francisco has done, what Atlanta has done, and try to find one of their own. And I think Jacksonville is another one, and LaVisca Chanel, who has been used similarly, although doesn't get quite as much attention because he's on the Jaguars and the Jaguars are one of the worst teams in football right now. So I think it's there. It's just a matter of being able to be in the right spot with the right coordinator who has a plan for you. And it goes back actually to, if we're going to go really deep in the history books here a little bit, it's not that deep, but deep enough. I covered a guy named Denard Robinson when I covered Michigan and he went to the NFL and he actually was drafted by Jacksonville and they were kind of trying to label him an OW or offensive weapon, because that was how they viewed him. And I've always wondered what would have happened if Denard Robinson had come around in today's NFL versus the NFL of a half decade ago, because I think the game has changed enough where there are more guys like a Denard Robinson, like a Cordero Patterson, like a Debo Samuel, that are out there now. And if teams like what they saw of what Arthur Smith did this year, of what Kyle Shanahan did, has done with Debo Samuel, I think you'll see more teams try and find them. But it's for a guy like that, you have to have a plan. You have to have a strategy. And if you don't have a plan or a strategy, it could happen. Let what happened at Cordero Patterson happens, which is you get pigeonholed in one spot versus saying, you know what, let's try all of these different things and see what happens. A Nard dog reference. I love it, man. I absolutely love it. Um, listen, Dan mentioned, you know, uh, the running back coach, Des Kitchings, uh, moving on to Virginia to become the offensive coordinator. 
We've seen several examples of coaches that are successful in the college game, but not in the NFL or vice versa. Where do you think Kitchings fits in in, in that range? You know, it's a tough question because Kitchings is a life is a lifelong college coach, right? It's not like he's a guy who's been in the league for 12 years and then decides, hey, I'm, I'm going to just go to college and try this because I'm not getting a shot as a coordinator. I'm not I'm not getting a chance, you know? I mean, Des Kitchings has been a college coach his entire career before this past year when he made the move to the NFL to coach the Falcons running backs. So the fact that he made the move back, to me, it almost says, hey, listen, this is a chance for me to be a coordinator. Like, that's a good thing. Like, what's wrong with that? Like, people are – I've had a couple people, you know, it's Twitter Twitter people. So, what does that really mean? We're like, oh, the Falcons can't hold on to a coach because look at this. He's going back to college. I'm like, yeah, he's also going from being a position coach to a coordinator. And it's not like he's going to a coordinator at Stony Brook, you know, or Hofstra, which no longer has a football team. But, like, you know, those were the two teams on Long Island when I was growing up. Like, so he's going to a a big school. He's going to Virginia. like going to an ACC school like that's a chance to, and a path to become a college head coach one day there's nothing wrong with that like to me I think it's a smart move for Des Kitching I'm curious to see what he does there. I'm curious to see how much of Arthur Smith's offense and maybe what he learned in the NFL and what he learned from Arthur Smith whether it's with a Patterson or whether it's with a Kyle Pitts who's another guy that isn't a running back receiver hybrid but is more of like a receiver tight end hybrid and what maybe that innovation could take, could lead to the college game. But also you can argue, well, that innovation has been happening in the college game for a while. Yeah, that's interesting. I want, could you maybe expand on that a little bit, his style and kind of how maybe he was somewhat responsible for the discovery of how Patterson could be a dangerous offensive weapon and what you would expect to see him implement at a college level in the scheming there. Yeah, I wouldn't say he was responsible for what they discovered in Patterson because that that was definitely, sorry, Dave Ragone and Charles London in Chicago who then came over to Atlanta. That was partially Arthur Smith, who is the play caller as well. But Des Kitchings had a role here because one of the things that Patterson was not good at last year was pass blocking because that's blocking as a running back and blocking as a wide receiver are two completely, completely different things, right? Like totally different styles, totally different responsibilities, basically totally different like skill sets. And what Charles London, who was the running backs coach in Chicago, had not done was really work much on pass blocking. So that was all Des Kitchings this year. And Cordero Patterson has gotten a lot better at it. And that, to me, also says, hey, he, he really sees Patterson as more of a complete running back. But in terms of what it could mean for a scheme, you know, it's tough to say because it, I, I, I'm trying to think of the right way to phrase this. So, like, access in the NFL has not been great this year in terms of having time to talk to people and, and getting really a chance to sit down with guys a lot. So I, I couldn't tell you what exactly Des Kitchings would want to run schematically because it's not like he is an Arthur Smith guy that has come up with him throughout the, through Tennessee or – you know, was in the same system over and over. Like, Des Kitchings has bounced around a lot of places. So I imagine you'll see some of what Arthur Smith has done, maybe some of the rug concepts, maybe some of the motion concepts that 
he is implemented. I think Arthur Smith has been as creative as he can be considering his offensive personnel. But I would imagine he takes some of what he did at NC State, some of what he maybe learned as a, as a practice squad type player in the NFL, some of what he learned early in his coaching career. I think that this experience for Des Kitchings will probably be more of a combination of, of multiple offenses and multiple systems than one that's just obvious that it came from this person and came from this place. So it's absolutely going to be him. Like it, that just hasn't been Des Kitchens, Des Kitchens career arc. And because of that, I think there's a little bit of unpredictability to exactly what it'll be. You know, you talked a little bit, of, you, you touched on a little bit, uh, kind of the difficulty it has. You guys have faced covering teams and just not having access as much as you would maybe three years ago, pre pandemic or whatever, just a, a little insight on the, on the draft, as far as how, how has, have those challenges, you know, how, how's it hard? I mean, I guess I should say, what is it like to overcome those challenges to try and cover guys when you don't have as much access as you used to and, and how do coaches handle really not being able to maybe have, you know, the, the free access that they had, you know, two or three years ago. Are you talking about coaches with college programs or? Yeah. Well, well coach, like as they uh, scout for the draft. Right. No. I, yeah. I mean, I think that was a much bigger issue a year ago. And I think the teams learn stuff, but they're able to get all the information that they like, 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 let's just stop that right now. Like they, they can get the information because they also have pro days. They have combine, they have senior bowl, hula bowl, blue gray game, like all of, you know, shrine game, all, all the all-star games, they exist, all the all-star games that exist. They, and they have scouts that can still talk, still bop around, still see people. Like it's all about being able to be smart in the information getting, I wrote a story this was a February, I think it ran in March, I ended up running in March 2020, but I, I did the reporting on it at the Senior Bowl. I don't exa- remember exactly when it ran. I think it ran around the combine, right around when COVID was happening. It was the life of the scout and being on the road all the time and what they get. And it's still all about the relationships and the information that they're able to glean. And you're still able to do that. It's just a little bit harder to get that. But if you have good scouts, and you have a good plan in place if you're an NFL team and a good process, you're still going to be able to get the all the information you need because you're still able to have the conversations with guys. You're still able to do the research. You're still able to talk to the college coaches. You're still able to talk to the high school coaches. And you're still able to see as much of the film as possible. And college colleges let scouts go to games and let GMs go to games this year. Uh, I don't know how that works exactly with practices, depending on the, I think it might have depended on the school. But I think it's not as bad as it was a year ago in terms of getting that information. That, that year, last year, was to me where you saw a lot of the issues, I think, lie when it comes to that. When I was talking to access, I was talking about media access to players. That's what I was referring to, not necessarily teams' access to schools. Gotcha. So I could imagine where you're probably going with this now that you covered the Atlanta Falcons, but – do you have a national championship prediction for college football just before we go? <laughs> I knew you'd ask me that. By the way, I did just since we were talking about Virginia, Virginia a bunch on this. I did cover Virginia for one year. Uh, it was Matt Schaub's senior year. 
they were supposed to be really good. And then Matt Schaub got hurt the first drive of the first game against Duke. And they were not as good. I think they ended up in the car care bowl. Al Groh was the uh, head coach that year. But Virginia actually had open locker room uh, after games and on Mondays when I covered them. That's like unheard of now in the NFL. Just wow. want to throw that out there. Or not unheard of in colleges. Uh, at least now for sure and, and has not existed now for a couple of years in the NFL, but no, I covered So I covered one year of ACC football uh, when it was that ACC with Al Groh and, and Charlottesville is an awesome place. That That's a really cool place to cover a game. And I covered Notre Dame for four years and been in a bunch of the state, other stadiums in the ACC. Uh, as far as the national title game, you know, no, I'm going to pick Alabama. I, I just am. I think Alabama's proven that they're they what they did to Georgia. It's not like that was a close game. I mean, they really took it to Georgia. They just did. And I, I say that that probably happens what three out of ten times. I think Georgia wins probably three out of ten times, and then it's a toss up the other four times. So I would put it more in the toss up category. But I think Alabama ends up winning that game. I, I just really do. I think Alabama has shown that they have figured it out and that they are maybe the better team. Although I really like so much of Georgia's team and I like their defense a lot, but Alabama, I just think is the better team, but it's not by much. I don't think it's going to be a repeat of the SEC title game. I think it's a close game. I think it's a game that comes down to the last two minutes and, you know, Alabama either scoring a, t scoring a touchdown late or, and then probably putting together a big stop. That's how I see it. But I think it's a close game. And it would not shock me at all if Georgia wins. Not in the slightest. But uh, I'm going to take Alabama. So we have, a, we have a Nard Dog reference, a Matt Schaub reference, and then Michael Rothstein picking against the home team. I, I didn't grow up. All right. All right. Hold on. Hold on one second. All right. I, I got to clarify this. First of all, I, I did not grow I, I did not grow up in Georgia. I grew up in New York. Uh, I actually went to Syracuse. Another ACC school that right. has been down on its luck in, in football for uh, really since the Doug Marone year. Uh, and they, you know, I, I don't know. I don't root for teams. I don't like that's uh, um, except for Nottingham Forest in the uh, English Championship League, not even the Premiership. And uh, I, I still have some allegiance to the Mets just because that's something that my dad and I share. Uh, other than that, now, nah, man, like once you get into this thing, like you just especially since I've covered so much football on the college level and the pro level, like it, it, it's just, it's not the same. Like you just, I watch game when I watch football, I watch it differently. I watch with really no rooting interest to begin with. I watch it from a more analytic or analytical bent than, than anything like that. So it's not like I'm picking against a home, whatever. Nah, that ain't, that ain't my deal, man. I just want to make sure that that's clear. Like I, yeah, I just think I'm just, I'm just giving you a hard time, man. I know, I, but you know, but listen, I only say that because like there are people who will like very much take that very, 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 <laughs> very, very seriously. So I just want to try to, I'm trying to nip that and like whatever like horrible mentions I might get on on Twitter. I'm just trying to cut that off before I can. <laughs> no, I'm I'm glad to hear about the Mets thing. No, I'm a diehard Mets fan here, and. I mean, it's kind of the same thing each year, but hey, we're signing like the entire. Oh, it, dude, it's the same thing. It's the same thing year after year, man. Like, yeah, it is. So I, I'm, I'm, I'm old. I'm an older human. So I was alive in eighty. I, I remember eighty six a little bit. I actually in my closet. Uh, I have the my so my dad after they won in eighty six had bought me a 
uh, New York Mets World Champs 86 jackets that I still have now, what, 34, 35 years later, um, that, I mean, I clearly can't fit into anymore because I was all of six. So that's not going to happen. But I still have it because we were cleaning out my parents' house when my dad moved a few years ago, and he still had it. So I kind of just said, all right, I'll take that. Sure. Like, you never know, that could be worth something in 20 years. And also, it, you know, it was mine. Uh, but yeah, no, it's the Mets are the Mets are a conundrum every year. Actually, uh, I was fortunate to go to the World Series when they played the Royals. Uh, unfortunately, it was actually the first NFL game I had missed uh, since I had started covering the league. And it was because it was in London and we only ESPN only sent one reporter to London and I had gone the year before. So the Lions are playing the Chiefs. And instead, I was able to take my dad to the World Series game in New York. Uh, that was also the Matt Harvey game, which anyone who watches the Mets knows exactly what I'm talking about, because that changed so much of Matt Harvey's career, I think. And that was an awesome experience, but not the best ending. No, I vividly remember that game. But uh, thank you so much, Michael. Anything else before you hop off? Anything else you got to say? Yeah, uh, you know, follow me on Twitter, on Instagram, at Mike Rothstein. And uh, I have a podcast called From the Perch. It's Atlanta Falcons. We're going to really flip it to be much more heavily draft focused. Probably after next week is, you know, everybody get all the NFL teams get in the draft cycle. Hopefully going to have some prospects on there to chat. Hopefully have some other people to maybe explain some different parts of the intricacy of the draft process. That is my hope. So that drops on Mondays and Thursdays. You can find it wherever you listen to podcasts. And again, it's called From the Perch. We'll drop Thank you all, by the way, for having me. Yeah, no problem. Thank you for coming on. We'll drop the link of that in the episode description. We'll also drop the link to the Pipeline Discord in the episode description where you could join the conversation with all our Pipeline community. But that's all we've got for you guys. So thanks once again for listening, and we will see you next time on the Pipeline ACC podcast.